friends, if you have a Bible uh, with you or in the chair in front of you, you're going to grab it with me. And you can turn with me to the book of Revelation. If you're looking at that black Bible in the chair that you're sitting in, that should be found on page 1028. And we thought since we started with the book of Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, we thought, why not go to the end? So we're going to begin our study of the book of Revelation. Ask that you be praying for us as a congregation as we dig into God's word in the coming weeks and months that God would help us to understand and to obey what he's saying to us in this book. Before we dive into the the Bible together, let me just once again uh, ask the Lord um, for his help as we read his word together. So if you would please join me as I lead us in prayer. Father, we pause and give you thanks Thanks for your word. Thanks for the ministry and presence of your Holy Spirit that we not only sung about when we, when we sang, illumine us with the, Spirit's, with the Savior's light. Lord, we ask that now in prayer. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to see, the eyes of our hearts to see and to understand and to believe and to obey. Lord, we remember Paul on the road to Damascus. He was not looking for you. He was going to persecute the church, and yet you stopped him. You blinded him with your glory. You you caused the scales on his eyes to fall off so that he could see you, know you, love you, trust you, and then proclaim you. Lord, what you did in Saul making him Paul, we ask now that you would do by your Holy Spirit through your word in the lives of every individual here at First Baptist this morning. Lord, help us to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What comes to mind when you think of the book of Revelation? Many people are really curious about the book, but they avoid it because it seems like a foreign language. It seems so alien to the reader. But as a consequence of avoiding reading it, many people's view, their present view of this book is shaped more by pop fiction books like Left Behind or movies that depict the apocalypse more than what the actual content of the book of Revelation says. For some, Revelation brings to mind the guy on the street corner Big white beard holding a sign up saying, the end is near. Others are curious if the message in Revelation has something to do with what they watched on the evening news. Friends, as we walk through the book of Revelation together as a church, we will hear loud trumpets We will hear voices that sound like thunder. We'll meet angels, demons, a red dragon, a beast with seven heads, locusts that have scorpion-like tails and teeth like that of a lion. We'll meet a man whose eyes blaze like the sun. What comes to mind when you think about the book of Revelation? For many, the word that comes to mind is confusing, controversial, intimidating, or just plain weird. But when we pick up the book of Revelation and read it, the word that rises to the top The word that rises to the surface is not confusing. It's not weird. The word that rises to the top is blessed. The book begins with a promise of blessing. In chapter 1, verse 3, we read, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. The book begins with a blessing. The, word, the book actually ends with a promise of blessing. In the end of Genesis, chapter 22, verse 7, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So 
by bookending revelation like this, we know that the heart of God and the heart of the message of revelation is to bless. It's to bless you, to bless me, to bless those who read revelation, who hear revelation, and who keep what God says in the book of Revelation. That keep is important because it's not, it's not enough just to own a copy of the book of Revelation and put it on your shelf. It's not even enough to just read it. The blessing does not fall on the reader or the hear, hearer like some magic fairy dust because they, write, they read it or even if they rightly interpret it. No, it, it says the blessing is for those who read and hear and keep. In other words, those who believe, those who obey what is written in it. Now, I'm going to say up front, there are some parts in Revelation that are difficult to unravel, and we will do our best to work our way through them in due time. But make no mistake, God does not intend Revelation to be kept like a locked box that no one can understand except for the trained professionals. He intends Revelation to be understood in order that you can obey it. He wouldn't call us to obey it, to keep it, unless he intended us to understand its message. So whether you are eight years old or 88 years old, with the help of God's spirit, we can understand the message of Revelation. Its purpose, the purpose of Revelation, is not meant to fuel the curiosity of end-time speculations. It's meant and designed to show God's people how we are to live in light of God's unparalleled victory, the victory that is ours in Jesus. So Revelation begins with a prologue, and if you're like, well, what's a prologue? Well, a prologue is like a literary movie trailer. It introduces where the book is going, and it shows us how to read the book. And so we see that prologue, the beginning of that prologue, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And this prologue is meant to help us understand and obey and the message of Revelation so that we can keep the message of the Revelation and experience the blessing of God. So let's read chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that soon must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to the, his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is God's word, friends. We're going to break this section, this prologue, into two parts this morning, and those will be the two points of the sermon if you're taking notes. Point number one is this. Follow the roadmap. Point number one, follow the roadmap. This is verses one through three. If I get into the car and I'm traveling somewhere I've never been before, one of the first things I do is grab my phone and pull up the map so I don't get lost. Whenever you start a new book of the Bible, it helps to map out certain aspects of that book so that you don't get lost. 
aspects like who is the author? Who is the primary audience? When was this written? What was the purpose of it being written? And what is the literary type? What is the genre of this book? Well, thankfully, verses one through three provide a roadmap for us for the book so that we know how to read it and we can know where it's headed so that we know how to understand and apply the book of Revelation. So, first of all, what is the book? What's the type? What's the genre of the book? Well, look at verse 1. John writes, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Little housekeeping note here. Note that this is not revelations, plural. It's the singular revelation. So it's the, the book of revelation, not the book of revelations. This is a singular revelation. The word for revelation there is the Greek word apocalypse. And when you hear that word, it comes with baggage for us. Some people may envision some nuclear mushroom cloud in the horizon when they hear the word apocalypse. But actually the Greek word apocalypse simply means to unveil. This is the unveiling. That's what the, that's what the word revelation means. So we're meant to imagine ourselves sitting in a theater. The orchestra stops tuning their instruments. The lights dim The audience quiets down in anticipation, and all of a sudden, the curtain lifts to unveil what's on stage. Revelation is like that. Revelation is the unveiling. But this is important. What is being unveiled? According to verse 1, the unveiling is of Jesus Christ. Christ, the revelation, the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. This is central to the book. This is key to understanding the book. If, friends, if you are excited about this new study in the book of Revelation because you expect it to answer the speculative questions about current events or end times or when exactly, what day will Jesus come back, you will be sorely disappointed by the book because that's not what it's about. It's about the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So if, if, if me saying, well, it's not going to answer your speculative questions kind of disappoints you, don't be disappointed. Revelation has something far better to offer us. When we get to chapter 4, verse 1, John hears a voice from heaven inviting him to come up here, see what we're seeing from this heavenly perspective. And then John relays that message to us. <clears throat> Revelation provides a heavenly perspective of reality, of God, of Jesus, of what's happening on this earth, of who we are. It provides a a, a divine perspective on reality. A perspective not not, not what the magazines at the grocery store claim, not what the latest podcast may argue, not even what we in our limited or sinful perspective may may be even able to assume or understand, but what is being revealed is the truth of Jesus Christ so that we can see what John saw, the glory of Jesus Christ. Who Jesus is from God the Father's perspective. All right, so this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's the purpose of the book? Why was it written? Look at verse one again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Why? Why did God give him this book, this revelation? What's the purpose? To show to his servants the things that must soon take place. There you go. That's the purpose. As the book unfolds, we will see what things that are soon to take place he's talking about. But one of the things I want to emphasize here in the beginning is keep the main idea of the book in focus. Revelation reveals Jesus as the triumphant king who conquers evil, who judges sin and makes things right and brings his people into the joy, the everlasting joy of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, some imagery in Revelation is tricky, But the main point, the main message is crystal clear from verse 1 to all the the way to the end of chapter 22. It's clear. You can understand it. 
I love the story that one seminary professor tells. There was a group of seminary students playing basketball, and at the end of their game, they saw the janitor in the corner of the gymnasium waiting for them to finish, and he was reading a Bible. So the seminary students, done with their game, come over to the janitor, and they, they ask him, you know, what are you reading? And the janitor says, well, I'm reading the book of Revelation. Now, assuming that no one can understand the book of Revelation but trained professionals like themselves being seminary students, they asked the janitor, well, do you understand what you're reading? Oh, yes, he replied with a big smile on his face. Surprised and a bit skeptical, the seminary students asked, well, then, okay, what does it mean? And the janitor leans forward and says, Jesus is going to win. He's right. That is the that is the big idea of the book of, Gen- of Revelation. Jesus is going to win. And, 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 and that's, it's one of the interpretive north stars of the book. So when we work through some of the confusing parts that we're trying to make sense of, keep the north star of the big idea of Revelation, Jesus is going to win, as your north star. It will help us from kind of getting distracted from where John wants to take us. So who is Revelation written to? Who's the primary or first audience? Well, verse 4 is going to tell us it's written to the seven churches that are in Asia. So these are Asian Christians located what we know we know today and somewhere in modern day Turkey. And we're going to learn a lot more about these churches and their situation in chapters 2 and 3. Revelation's message is not limited to a group of people who are living in a short period of time just before Jesus' second coming. Revelation was written, first of all, for actual churches that existed in the first century. The whole book of Revelation has a message for those seven churches. And so as we work through the 22 chapters of Revelation, we need to ask ourselves over and over again, okay, how do the first readers understand this? What did this mean to the first audience? How would they read it before we bridge the gap into our world? But it's not, the message of Revelation is not limited to the seven churches in the first century. Verse 1 says that it's a revelation that God gave him to show to his servants. So that broadens the audience well beyond these seven churches living in the first century, and it broadens the application and the message of Revelation to us. In other words, if you today are a servant of God, if you are a Christian, Revelation has a message for you. If you're not yet a Christian, Revelation has a message for you. Verse 1 and verse 4 show us who the author is. It's John. And it's most likely the, the, the same John who is the, the disciple of Jesus, the same author of the gospel of John, the beloved disciple who put his, his head on the breast of Jesus. He is the human author. And then given the issues that we're going to learn about that the churches are facing in chapters 2 and 3, John likely received the revelation and wrote this down around 95 AD while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. We'll come to that next week, more details there. But kind of put a, a, a kind of a time stamp on this. Peter, the apostle, had been martyred. Paul, the apostle, had already been martyred. Jerusalem had been destroyed in 70 AD. And uh, the Roman Empire was in charge at this time. So if, if this is written in 95 AD, that means that Domitian was the current Roman emperor, emperor who ruled Rome from 81 all the way to 96 AD. And that's important because during his reign, during the reign of Domitian, hostility towards Christians intensified. And we're going to see part of the, 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 the situation and the context of what these original readers were, were facing. Interestingly, we know from other accounts, Domitian in, insisted that people refer to him as Lord and God. A little bit insecure if you ask me. And each Roman citizen was required to take a pinch of incense, throw it into the fire, and declare, Caesar is Lord. So if you're a Christian, 
you, you're, you have to deal with what, what am I going to do with this? The emperor of Rome is demanding that I worship him and call him God, but I only worship one God. And the emperor is not him. So if you refuse this act of worship, which was required by law, you could be exiled, you could even lose your life. So under the tyranny of Rome and the seduction of Rome's opulence and sinful pleasures and the way that Rome made sin look normal, the temptation for the church was to compromise, to cave, to give up to water down God's word so that they might fall under the radar of Rome and they might actually fit in with the pagans living in Rome. They were under pressure. Sound familiar? Revelation has an important word for us today. Revelation is written to encourage, to strengthen, to warn, and to embolden the church, even in hostile times, to keep going, keep proclaiming the gospel, keep trusting God until the end. It's a wonderful book of encouragement. Okay, well, how then, how does this book of Revelation communicate its message? Again, look at verse one. Verse one, God gave the revelation to show his servants the things that must soon take place. That's important to note. Revelation does not just tell. It's, it's a, the, the genre, the literary type is very different than, say, the book of Romans, which is like a, a syllogism or a, a very logical argument that Paul's making in Romans. Revelation is, is not like that. Revelation is like a, a canvas with a paintbrush or a movie screen, and, and it's, it's meant to be seen. He's showing us truth. So, that's important to understand at the very beginning because we, we like to say a picture is worth a thousand words. In this case, in the, when it comes to the book of Revelation, the images, the pictures that we see in Revelation, that's true. The images in Revelation invite us into the perspective that John was able to see in this Revelation. He's inviting us in to see this heavenly perspective of reality, to hear what John heard, to see what John saw. And that divine perspective that we see in the book of Revelation is meant to change how we think and live today. Those images that we're going to see in Revelation are powerful. It's a big part of apocalyptic literature that we, that we have as in Revelation. But it's also why some modern interpretations of Revelation are really weird, unbiblical, and go off the rails. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, Though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. The point is, is there are some very strange interpretations today that you can read about online or in books that are taking the message of revelation and twisting God's word and saying, thus, say, thus says the Lord when God's not saying that. Some of the interpretations that you hear today would have John pulling his hair out. I didn't say that. So how can we avoid going off the rails in our interpretation? How can we rightly interpret the images, the pictures that are so important in this book? Well, let me just give you three principles up front that I think are going to be helpful for us as we walk through this book. Three principles for interpreting these images. First, keep the big picture of Revelation in mind. Keep the big picture of Revelation in mind as you work through the particulars. New Testament scholar Vern Poitras notes, Suppose I start by asking, what do the bear's feet in Revelation 13, verse 2, stand for. If I start with a detail like that and I ignore the big picture, I am asking for trouble. God is at the center of Revelation, so start with him. If instead we try right away to puzzle out the details, it's as if we've tried to use a knife by grasping the blade instead of the handle. 
we're starting at the wrong end. Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. So don't try to puzzle it out. Don't become preoccupied by isolated details. Rather, become engrossed in the story. Praise the Lord, cheer for the saints, detest the beast, long for the final victory. That's that's helpful. So first, keep the big picture in mind. Second principle, remember the symbolic nature of Revelation. Basketball, football, baseball are all sports, but each sport has different rules. So if LeBron James brings a baseball bat onto the basketball court, he's going to be in trouble. He's breaking the rules. Or if you try to tackle the base runner on a baseball diamond, it doesn't work that way. You're not following the rules. It's not how the game of baseball works. In the same way, different genres of scripture, there are various genres in scripture, different literary types, narrative, poetry, wisdom, apocalyptic literature like Revelation are all God's word. They're all God's word. But as different genres, they have different tools they use and different rules for our interpretation. So verse, when verse 1 says, Jesus made it known, the Greek word behind that word, made it known, the verb literally means to communicate something with symbols. That's helpful. Because everything in Revelation is true. Everything in Revelation is true. It's communicating truth to us. But rarely is it literal. So if you're reading poetry, if you're reading Psalm 23, and the Lord, you say, the Lord is my shepherd, we're not meant to literally mean that Jesus is, that God has got a shepherd's hook, and we're, we're not literally to understand ourselves as sheep that eat grass. It's a metaphor that that genre uses to teach a theological truth. Same thing in apocalyptic literature. For instance, Jesus, we're going to meet Jesus in, in Revelation 5. He is the Lion of Judah. But we don't take that literally. We don't think that Jesus is literally a, a lion with long teeth and a mane. No, it's a, that, that would be to ignore the genre. It's like bringing a baseball glove to the basketball court, right? No, the, the symbol or the picture of Jesus as a lion communicates the truth that Jesus is king. So it's using this picture to communicate a literal truth, but we need to see the symbol and the symbolism and read it that way to rightly interpret the pictures. So keep the big picture in mind. Keep, remember the symbolic nature of Revelation. But one of the questions that comes with this then is, well, then who's to say that we can't make the symbols mean whatever we want? Isn't that what gets people into trouble? Yes. So the third principle is this. Remember the Old Testament context. Remember the Old Testament context. When we ask questions, and when we're reading the Bible and we say, what does this word mean? What does this phrase mean? Our authority is not what we read in the newspaper. Our authority is not our own opinion. The authority of meaning is literary context. What came before this phrase? What comes after this phrase? So when the context of the Bible directs our interpretation, it keeps us from going off the rails or twisting the text to say something that it's not saying. Now, there are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. Of the 404 verses in Revelation, more than 278 verses are an allusion to or refer back to, in some way, the Old Testament. So if we're going to understand Revelation, we've also got to understand the Old Testament. Books like Genesis or the, the prophets like Zechariah or Daniel. And so we'll do our best to show the connections between the Old Testament and what what the writer was assuming of the Old Testament when he gives these pictures in Revelation. So often when John paints a picture, the roots of that picture are in the Old Testament and they are our guide for interpretation. So when you're looking at an image, one of the questions you need to ask yourself is, where is this in the Old Testament? So remember the three principles. Remember the big picture, remember the symbolic nature of Revelation, and the Old Testament context. Those will be our guides. Now, in, in Mark 1.15, when Jesus began his ministry, 
he comes on the scene in Mark 1 15 and he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, what Jesus is saying at the beginning of his ministry is, I'm the king and the kingdom of God has arrived. Amen. We as Christians, we believe that. Jesus is king, his kingdom of, the kingdom of God is at hand. But I want you to put yourself in John's shoes just before he received this revelation that we're reading. John was one of the disciples of Jesus. He loved Jesus. He gave his life to Jesus. John believed that Jesus is king. And yet, when John looked at the world, the world's godless agenda marched forward, almost unchallenged at times. He looked at the church. The church was suffering. And John himself had been, had been hauled off by the police and put in exile on the island of Patmos because of his witness for Jesus. So there's John, alone, on the island of Patmos, suffering, weary, tired. Where's his king? Where's the kingdom of God? Is this it? You can see how he'd be struggling, discouraged. But in that moment of discouragement, in, in, with the loud boasts of Rome and its power and authority and wealth and saying, this is, this is true power, we're the ones in charge. With all the discouragement that he was facing, in that moment on the island of Patmos, John received this revelation of Jesus Christ. And from his heavenly vision, John was able to see and then to show us who's actually in charge. Where true blessing and peace and grace is actually found. Not in wealth or power or success or fame, but in Jesus. So if point one is follow the roadmap, point number two is this. Behold, see the true king. Behold the true king. This is verses four through eight. Look at verse four again with me. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. So verse four is a greeting. It reads like a letter, which is a reminder that not only is Revelation prophecy or apocalyptic, it's also a letter that's meant to be read by the churches like we're doing right now. And, and we read that in this greeting, John's the author. The audience is the seven churches that are in Asia. Again, we're gonna see more, we're gonna learn more about those seven churches in chapters two and three, and we're gonna learn what they're facing. Cold hearts, the possibility of losing their job for the Christian faith the pressure to conform to the world's way of thinking, an exhausting fight against sin and temptation, facing hatred, hostility, or persecution from the world for their faith. Point is, many Christians in those seven Asian churches were weary, tired. They were ready to throw in the towel. And so to strengthen the church, to embolden the church, John writes, verses four through eight, but notice where he begins. He doesn't give some pep talk to boost their self-esteem. Oh, you guys are great. Where does he start? He starts with the greatness of God. Look at the greatness of God. That's how he strengthens them. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So look at that. Verse 4, we first see God the Father. Him who is and who was and who is to come. That's a reference to God the Father. It's an echo of what Moses was hearing in Exodus 3, verse 14, when he stood before and trembled before a holy God on holy ground who spoke his name from a burning bush. I am who I am. In other words, God is the creator. God is the eternal one who always was, who is, and always will be. 
He is the one who is not only eternal and our creator, but he rules all things. He is. He reigns right now over the world and over the church, over the Roman Empire. He was, meaning there never was a time in history when he was not the sovereign God. And he is to come, meaning he will come in the future to sit on his throne and judge the world and make all things right. He is, he was, he is to come. After introducing us to the God the Father, John's focus turns to the Holy Spirit in verse 4. When he says, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now that phrase, the seven spirits, might be confusing. What does he mean by the seven spirits? Well, let's do a quick study. If, we, if, you, if you skip ahead to chapter 4, verse 5. We see a similar phrase. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So in chapter 4, verse 5, seven spirits of God are the seven torches of fire. Okay, well, that's a little more helpful, but we're like, still, what is that? Again, this imagery is rooted in the Old Testament. John is borrowing imagery from Zechariah 4. We don't have time to read the whole chapter, but there in Zechariah 4, the prophet Zechariah is shown a golden lamp with seven branches, seven torches. And he's like, well, what is that? And the angel explains to Zechariah that that seven-pronged lamp, what that symbolizes. And he says, this is what it is. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. The temple will be built by the power of the Spirit. So in other words, Zechariah 4, he's saying that seven-pronged lamp is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. I think that's what John is talking about. So John is not saying that there are seven Holy Spirits. No, that's not his point. Remember that apocalyptic literature is symbolic, including the number seven. It's symbolic. The number seven is a symbol of, of completeness. In, in the Old Testament. It's a symbol of perfection. So what John is saying is, you know what? You, Christian, you may grow tired. You may grow weary. But the Holy Spirit won't. He's at work in the church. He's at work in the Christian's life. He's at work in this world. He is the seven-pronged lamp. He is the seven torches. His oil never runs out. His power never runs out. Not by strength, not by power, but by my spirit, this will happen. The spirit is at work in the world with complete and perfect and limitless power. When Christians rely on the spirit, when churches rely on the spirit, his spirit strengthens us and that church shines brightly in the world. So we've seen the father We've seen the Holy Spirit. Finally, we see God the Son, and there's three things he tells us about God's Son in verse 5. Look at verse 5. From Jesus Christ, there's the Son, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. Three things. First, we see that Jesus is the faithful witness. That's good. Because we live in a world that is filled with lies. Our enemy seeks to deceive us, to discourage us, There are lies that are told about us. And friends, we're tempted to believe those lies. We're we're tempted to take those lies and, and, and assume that those lies that we're hearing are reality. But those lies from Satan or our enemies are not a faithful witness. So over and against the lies that this world is filled with, Jesus comes on the scene and he is the faithful witness. In other words, he tells us the truth about God, about ourselves, about this world. And because he is the faithful witness, we can trust him. We should choose to ignore the lies of this world, ignore the lies about us, and listen to the faithful witness of Jesus in the pages of Scripture. Not only is he a faithful witness, he's also the firstborn from the dead. Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead, but he's not the last. That's part of what's being said here. Because if you're a Christian, you are united to Christ by faith. And because you're united to Christ by faith, his resurrection from the dead, where he received a glorified body, 
His resurrection guarantees your resurrection. Ralph Austin died, but guess what? That's not the end of Ralph Austin. United to Christ, he will rise again. He's not gonna be some spirit floating in the clouds. God will one day give Ralph a glorified body and he will give a glorified body that doesn't get sick or get, have cancer or die or sin. There'll be no more tears or suffering or sorrow anymore when that day comes. How do we know that? Because Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. And he's saying, where I'm going, I'm gonna bring you. So you might die. If, if, if you die, you might die before Jesus comes back. But if you die, it's not the end of you. We have the hope of the resurrection. Finally, we learn that Jesus is the ruler. He is the ruler of the kings on earth. And so reminding us that whether Roman emperors or prime ministers or presidents, every ruler, every king, every authority on earth has to answer to Jesus. Why? Because all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. He is the king and the ruler of kings on earth. And he is like, if you remember Proverbs 21, verse 1, the the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He steers it wherever he wants because Jesus is in charge and he has all authority. Even the kings that do dumb stuff and evil things, God can overrule and use them for good. That's what we saw in the book of Genesis with Joseph. So praise be to God that Jesus is the king of kings and Lord of lords. Do you see why he's showing this, who God is? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's meant to embolden us, strengthen us, encourage us. The reason that we have a hard time trusting and obeying Jesus is because we're not listening and we're not looking at what John sees and shows and what John heard and says to us. We're listening to the wrong thing. We're looking at the wrong thing. Verse four says, grace and peace. I want you to have grace and peace. Where does, it, where does this grace and peace come from? I want grace and peace. Where does it come from? Not from vacations. Not from having a lot of money in your bank. Not from having the right politician in office. Not from experiencing success at work. Verse four says, grace to you and peace from him. From God, who's sovereign over all. God, the Holy Spirit, who has limitless power and never grows weary or tired. God, the faithful witness who tells us the truth. God, who is the firstborn from the dead, who gives us a living hope. Look to him. In times of discouragement, in times of despair, what we need most is a big God a big vision of a big God. Because when you know that that big God is for you, who can be against us? Friends, beholding the God of the Bible, not the God of our imagination or the God of the magazine rack or the God of the podcast, but the God of the Bible. When we behold him, it leads to praise and worship. And that's what happens in verse five. Look at verse five. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. There's the praise. Amen. So be it. In seeing what Jesus does for us in verse 5, we also learn something about our identity in verses 5 and 6. Who we are. So verse 5 says, to him who loves us. What's God doing? Well, Jesus is loving you. But that him, him loving you also shows something about your identity. When you look in the mirror today, if you're a Christian, you should say, I am loved by God. I am loved by Jesus Christ. That's who you are. All right, if you have kids, do you, anybody love their kids? Do you love your kids? Raise your hand. Do you love your kids? Okay, I hope most of you have, you're raising your hands, right? And most of us who have kids, we love our kids. And we would, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We love our kids and, and we, would, we love them so much that we would be willing to lay down our life for them. But how willing are we to lay down our life for an enemy? Someone who annoys us. Someone who 
makes life difficult for us. Someone who hates you. Someone who arrogantly opposes you. You willing to die for them? Most of us would say, no thanks. But that's what Jesus has done for us. Romans 5, verse 8 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, opposed to God, hating God, his enemies, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That is the depth of the love of God. And then the end of verse 5 also reminds us that he has freed us from our sins. How? By his blood. Brothers and sisters, you are free. What has Christ done? He set you free. When you look in the mirror, you should, you should say, I am free. I am free from sin's penalty. I am free from the slavery to sin. And that's important to remember because sometimes when, when we're struggling to grow as a Christian, we feel like we're unable to change. We feel like we're in shackles. We feel like we're bound to become the person that we don't want to be. I can't change. That's a lie. The faithful witness who tells you the truth, truth comes to you and says, I've set you free by my blood. You don't have to sin anymore. You can say no to sin. So you can, you, Christian, you can think that you're still in prison to sin, but if you are united to Christ, the shackles have fallen off, the prison door has swung open, and you are free. In Christ, you don't have to sin. In Christ, with his spirit in you, you have the power to say no. Not because you're great, but because he's great. And his death has freed us from our sin. What's the purpose of this? Why does he free us from our sin by his blood? Verse six, he has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. As those who have been made in God's image, human beings have the role in creation. We saw this in Genesis one. Our role as human beings is to both represent and reflect God, represent his rule, reflect his character. That was going well in Genesis 1 and 2. But then when sin was introduced to the picture in Genesis 3, it made a mess of things. And instead of setting us free, but but even though our sin made a mess of things, Jesus reestablishes us in our exalted, dignified role as those made in his image. And he empowers us to once again, by his spirit, represent him accurately and reflect his character accurately. This is who you are, church. You are loved by God. You are free from sin. You are a kingdom and priest to our God. Do you live like you're loved by God? Do you live like you're free? Do you live as if God is your king and he's king over what you watch on TV and your internet usage and how you speak and your money and what you do in private? Do you live that way? That's what's true of you. Do you live that way? Do you live like a priest who declares the good news of a king? It's who we are. And the urgency of our need to be reconciled to God is then clear in verse seven. Look with me at verse seven. Behold, he, referring to Jesus, is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and and even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So John reminds us in verse seven that Jesus came, he came first 2000 years ago to live a perfect life as the Messiah, as the Savior, and he came to die for sin. That was, that, was, that was the focus of his first coming. But he's coming a second time, and when he comes a second time, it's not to die for sin, it's to sit on the throne and judge the world in righteousness. To judge evil, to set things right in this world. To bring justice, righteousness, and peace. Now, some will hear this promise of Jesus coming, and they will scoff, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, 
Christians have been saying that Jesus is coming for 2,000 years. I haven't seen him come yet. And so they'll hear verse 7, and, and, and they won't take John seriously. And they'll go on with the rest of their day as if that wasn't true. Jesus is coming. <laughs> What's on TV? Now, verse 1 said that this revelation was about the things that must soon take place. Soon. And then later on in verse 4, the, the things, or verse 3, the time is near. So these events are, are coming soon and the time is near, and yet it's been 2,000 years. What's, what's up with that? What, how are we supposed to read this? If it's been this long, how, what does he mean by soon in verse 1? This is one of those times when it's helpful to put the vision of John and Revelation right next to the vision in Daniel that Daniel received in the Old Testament. Daniel in the Old Testament was given a vision about what was to happen later in the latter days, in the, in the, in, in the future, down the road. And, and, and then he, God tells Daniel, I want you to, this is what's going to happen later, later on, and I want you to take this vision, and I want you to close the book up, and I want you to seal it, because it's not time yet. Now, that's Daniel, and then you read Revelation, and so Daniel said it's later, but then the Revelation for John is it's near. And Daniel was supposed to seal up the book, but in Revelation 22, verse 10, it says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Why? For the time is near. So Daniel was to wait for the defeat of cosmic evil and the ushering in of the kingdom of God. But John, in contrast, sees it as beginning to happen in his day. Soon, now. It's happening in the days of the seven churches, living in the first century, as he writes this, and as they wait for the final day, when Jesus comes again. It's a helpful kind of way of thinking about the time that we're in. The New Testament refers to the last days and the final day. The last days are the days between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming. So if you can picture the resurrection on a timetable and then his second coming, the whole time period here is the last days. Some refer to it as the church age. In other words, we live right now in the last days. That's how the New Testament talks about it. And then on the day that Jesus returns with the clouds, as verse 7 says, that day will be the, the last day or the day of the Lord or the day of judgment when he comes and sits on his throne and judges the world. You might not take this seriously. I get it. If you're not a Christian, you might hear the verse 7 and say, 2,000 years, ha ha, not coming. But friends, this is God speaking to us. This is God, the faithful witness saying, this is what's going to happen. That day is coming. Christ came first, the sinless Son of God, to die a sacrificial death, to take our place and bear the wrath of God for anyone who would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so, friends, if you're not yet a Christian this morning, today, listen, today, today is the day of salvation. God's delay the fact that Jesus has not come back yet is not because God is slow or forgetful, it's because he's patient and merciful. The delay is to give you and I an opportunity to repent and to trust in Jesus. But we're not promised tomorrow. Revelation says it's soon, it's near. Can happen any moment. And when Jesus comes back, it's game over. Today is the day of salvation. When Jesus comes, that door is shut. He is coming, and when he does, every eye will see him. And those who wail on account of him at the end of verse 7, picture a group of people wailing. They will wail in regret that they didn't listen 
on the day of salvation. They didn't take John seriously. They didn't act on what John was saying. So friends, if you are hearing John right now, it's not too late. Today is the day of salvation. I pray that you turn and trust in Jesus, that you receive him as your Lord and your Savior, that when he comes back a second time, that day will be a day of rejoicing for you and not a day of wailing. John ends in this prologue in verse eight then. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and was and, and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. And so by, by stating it like this, he, he's stating two polar opposites. And it's a rhetorical tool to say, from one extreme to the other and everything in between, everything's included. So that God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of history is God stressing the fact that throughout time, throughout history and the present and the future, he is ruler over all things. He is king over all things. He is the almighty over all creation. The 22 chapters in the book of Revelation are the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what John is saying is, look, look, listen. Do you hear what God is saying? Do you see what God is showing? Look. And I think the devil hates the book of Revelation. The devil does not want you to know that there's a world that is beyond yourself. The devil doesn't want you to know there's a world beyond your computer screen, there's a world beyond the trial that you're facing. The devil does not want you to look up. He doesn't want you to know that there's a heaven and a hell. The devil wants you to always stare at yourself. He wants you to stare at your sin. He wants you to stare at your circumstances. He doesn't want you to think about eternity. He doesn't want you to think about God's glory, God's power, God's victory, or God's love for you. He doesn't want you to look up. And because Satan wants you to be scared and angry and hopeless, what he does to get us there is by getting us to constantly think about ourselves and our sin and our circumstances. Look down, look at this, look at this, look at this, puts it in our face. And this is why we struggle so much And it's also why God graciously gives us the revelation of Jesus Christ. Robert McShane once said, for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. To the angry, the frightened, the weary, the hopeless, John says, look up. Look up. Look at Christ. Look at God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Church, look up. See the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when you do see him with the help of his spirit, you will leave strengthened, hopeful, knowing that this fight is worth it, and knowing that in the end, Jesus wins. He is where true blessing is found. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for sending a revelation to your son that you gave to an angel to show to John, to show to us that we might see your perspective on reality, that we might see you, that we might see your son, the spirit. Oh God, open our eyes. 
Help us to see and trust and rejoice in you. We pray that you would bless us as we read and help us to keep your word. We pray that you provide grace and peace as we come to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.